This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is a global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry and the destination for creating your own custom engagement ring. Choose from a variety of beyond conflict-free diamonds and other fine jewelry crafted from recycled precious metals at brilliantearth.com. And now, with your Wells Fargo Jewelry Advantage credit card, you can enjoy no interest if paid in full within 12 months subject to credit approval. See website for terms and conditions. For the 12-month financing offer and to shop all Brilliant Earth selections, just go to brilliantearth.com slash manliness, brilliantearth.com slash manliness. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you go on vacation, you probably travel to places to help you feel good, relax, and have fun. My guest today, well, he likes to visit places where great human suffering and tragedy has occurred. His name is Thomas Cook. He's a writer of crime fiction, but in his latest book, Even Darkness Sings, he takes readers with him on the real family trips he's taken to see humanity's darkest places, including Auschwitz, Verdun, and Hiroshima. We begin our conversation discussing how Thomas and his wife got the idea to visit dark places, how all dark places are different, yet connected and how darkness has unique power to offer insight and even hope and optimism. Tom then takes us on a tour of some of the tragic places he's visited and the lessons he learned from them. We end our conversation discussing the importance of treating dark places with somber reverence and how a personal dark place was created for Tom while he was writing this book. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is darkness. Thomas joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Thomas Cook, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So you wrote a book, Even Darkness Sings. It's about your travels. Now, what's interesting about your travels, a lot of people, you know, they pick themes for the travel. And I've known folks that have visited World War II sites, Civil War sites, homes of famous authors, places where Hemingway lived. You and your late wife decided to visit dark places. Now, before we get there, how did you guys define a dark place and what drew you to visiting those types of places? Well, I think that we had, I I knew, especially uh, given the fact that uh, it it occurred to me at one point that this would be a a, a book, was that we had to define dark places in various ways. You couldn't just go from one concentration camp or one battlefield to another. You had to define the kinds of darkness that exist in life. And so, of course, we, you had the celebrity sites, you might call them, of dark places like Auschwitz and Robbinsbrook and Verdun. But I also wanted to visit places where there had been, for example, a romantic tragedy or a medical tragedy or a, a natural disaster or a political tragedy that did not involve necessarily uh, atrocities, but was a tragedy. So I just came up with various kinds of places that I, that I wanted to go. And um, in a sense, also, just in my travels, they began to define themselves. And I, and these places sort of began to speak to me in, in tragic ways that you wouldn't necessarily notice if you didn't sort of have that broader understanding of what human tragedy is uh, in your mind. And I mean, what drew you to that? I mean, did you visit, like, there was a dark place you visited and you saw something there that maybe I want to go see more of this? I think it was really the moment that it really began to to occur to me, the value of all of this was when I was uh, in Italy with my daughter. We had been living in Spain and uh, we rented a car every summer. She went to the American School of Madrid. She was 12 years old. 
And uh, we would rent a car every summer. She had six years off and travel all around Europe. We also went to North Africa and, and other places like that. We were in um, Cosenza, a little town, a dreary, actually, little town in on the on in Italy. And we'd been driving all day, and she was 12 years old, and we'd been going to museums, what she called broken pot museums. And we were on this river, and Susan had its incredible ability to take a 10-minute nap and be completely refreshed. So during that time, uh, Justine and I would go out and we would play a game of, of hearts or rummy or something like that. But we were on this river, and I could tell you, know, it was the end of the day. It was extremely hot in Italy. She was very tired. And we were looking at the river, the, the little Busetto River. And I said, you know, this is where Alaric died. And she didn't know who Alaric was, but she asked. And I said, well, he was the last pagan emperor of Rome. And that sort of sparked a little bit of interest, not much, but a little. And then I said, you know, when he died here, they wanted to keep his birthplace secret. So they rerouted the river. They had hundreds of slaves who rerouted the river. And then they buried him in that river. And then they brought the river back to the channel, all of which is true, uh, so that no one would ever know where he, he was buried. And that sparked yet more interest. And I could see the river looked a little bit different to her now. Something had happened. And then I said, and when it was over, they slaughtered all of the slaves who had buried Alaric so that none of them could tell where he lay. And I saw something different come into her eyes. Suddenly, this was a place, something very, very dark had happened. And there was just more, a kind of intellectual passion for that place that wouldn't have been there uh, otherwise. And it struck me then, in a, in a child 12 years old, that this was, this was a good thing to do, a place to, to, not just Disneyland or Six Flags, or to take your kids to places like this from time to time. And I always say, Brett, that, you know, it's fine to take your kids to Disneyland and Six Flags and other places. I've done that. We went to Disneyland. We went to great fairs. Uh, we've gone to amusement parks in Barcelona throughout the world. But from time to time, you know, there's, you might want to go to a dark place and have a different kind of conversation with your children. Yeah, and, and what's interesting in these dark places, they what the places you went to, you know, human atrocities occurred, tragedies occurred. But what you, the theme that comes up over and over again in your book is that these dark places can can bring light. They can sing. They can give insights about life, but they but they do so obliquely. It's like it's not direct, right? It's not like it you, you get hammered in the head with it, but it happens maybe a few days or months after you leave the place. So I'm, I'm curious, like over the time you've been doing this, what are some of the sort of general themes or life lessons you've gotten from visiting these places? I think, uh, you know, I say in the book at, at one point that uh, dark places speak to each other. And, and in a way, it, it works like if you go to one dark place after another, certain lessons occur that really are germane to all of those lessons, all of those places and, and come out of that experience. And so that the lessons are compounded. And I remember particularly at Auschwitz, we had gone there and spent the day there, and it was very dark, and there was nothing really about Auschwitz that you could find in any really redeeming way. So you really don't look for that, although there were there were acts of great courage and at Auschwitz and great goodness that happened there as well in it, among individuals. But what happened once I left Auschwitz was that I remembered the trip there, and uh, we had left uh, Budapest that morning 
believing that we would be in Krakow by, uh, you know, by four in the afternoon. But the roads were very bad. The signage was awful. I would have to uh, get out and talk to these German bus drivers in these big buses. And, you know, my German isn't very good. And their directions were always imperdirect to imperdirect, which means straight on. But then you'd get to a fork in the road. Okay, straight on which way? Like, you know, left or right. So, as we got sort of bumblingly closer to the Polish border, it was getting very, very late. It was after midnight. And we finally reached the Polish border at around three in the morning. And these three guards came out. And I'll, I'll say now it was a little suspicious because they were all wearing different parts of their, of a single uniform. I mean, this was really right. Glasnost had not approached this place. It was right out of uh, Jean Le Carré. And they began to talk to me in Polish, and they wouldn't let me in Poland, even though I had, uh, you know, passports and everything like that. They kept asking for something, and I didn't speak a word of Polish. But they kept asking, and they kept asking, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to turn back and go to Budapest. They're not going to let me in at this border crossing. And then all of a sudden, this I heard this voice. I, it was absolutely angelic. This voice said, may I be of assistance, sir? And I turned around, and there was a guy named Siggy who had lived in the United States, but his wife wanted to come back to Krakow. They were on their way to Krakow as well. He negotiated everything for me, everything for me, and got me across the border. And I thought that was just an act of human kindness that was absolutely wonderful. But that man would not have been able to do that if I were a Jew fleeing Poland in, uh, in 1944 or 1943. He would not have been able to do that. And the lesson there was one that really, before tyranny comes, that's when you act against it. Because once tyranny is in place, it's, it takes superhuman courage to oppose it. You can oppose Hitler before he's a complete autocrat, but you can't oppose him after unless you are truly, truly, truly courageous. And so I guess my lesson there was that it's sort of a moral responsibility to be wise, to know that you have to begin to foresee what's liable to happen, what are the consequences of certain kinds of political decisions, and to look forward as much as you can. And that happened again and again to me in places that if people could have just taken a moment and thought and tried to really figure out what the consequences of their actions are going to be, and we're not perfect in that, you know, obviously, you know, uh, the rear view mirror is is perfectly clear, but at least try, and then maybe we can prevent some of these things in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, maybe it's how some w- one way the dark places you know are connected and they talk to each other because a lot of these things and these tragedies happen. You know, people really didn't see it coming or they weren't paying attention. That's exactly right. I mean, the Austrians voted for Anschluss. Uh, we keep forgetting that Hitler was elected by the German people. And it's when you see the steps toward authoritarianism before authority is, it has completely instilled itself, embedded its, in itself in the political process, then you have a chance to stop it. But you have to really look ahead. You know, there's a wonderful letter to Lenin. I, I've often quoted it to, to my more left-wing friends. And it is a, a letter that said, if a government is dominated by one party, it will finally be dominated by one committee within that party. And it will finally be dominated by one man within that committee. And that was a letter written of warning, written by Rosa Luxemburg to Nikolai Lenin before the communist revolution became Stalinist, you might say. Right. 
Well, let's let's talk. Let's take a little visit of some of these dark places you you visited throughout you know writing this book and throughout your life. I, I loved. I mean, you start off with this really poignant scene with the with the book. It's the Spanish Civil War. Colonel Jose Moscarado. He was the leader of the Nationalist Army. Mm-hmm. He was in a fort called Alcazar, and he gets a phone call. And you went to go visit this fort, and you got to see this phone. Yes. What happened during that phone call that he that he got? This was the Alcazar, which is really the military academy, the West Point of Spain. And if you go to Toledo, Toledo is built on a hill. And the Alcazar just dominates that hill. And he was in charge of the, of the fascist forces, Franco's forces there. The Republicans had captured his son, who was 17 years old, I believe, named Louis. And they called him and they told him that they had his son and that if he did not surrender the Alcazar, they would execute him. So on the pretext of wanting to make sure that this was his son, Colonel Moscardo asked to speak to Louis. And Louis came on the phone and they talked for a little while. And then Colonel Moscardo said to him, prepare to die, my son. And when I saw that, I saw it in a film called To Die in Madrid, a documentary about the Spanish Civil War. I just had this incredible impulse to see that phone to go to the Alcazar and see that phone. It took me years to do it. I was already married by then, so I went with Susan and I went with Justine. But I did see that phone, and they still have it there. It's part of the, uh, and the room is completely preserved, except they've now put up portraits of Louis and Colonel Moscardo. But it has entered sort of the legend of the Spanish Civil War. And it makes you, what happened there to me was that I went out on the, uh, the esplanade outside that, and for some reason began to think of my own father. And that's what really gave me the notion that these dark places sort of unmoor you and they let you think about your own life. And it's a really intimate kind of moment in which you share with yourself, your own past and the past of mankind. And all of that sort of is, comes together in those moments if you just let your mind go free. What insights about your father did that that experience give you? Well, uh, my father and I uh, did not have a lot in common. He was a very sweet man, a very, very kind man, but we, we did not have a lot in common. But we did have one thing in common. He liked to go to weird places. He liked to go where there were floods, where a tornado, we were in the South. I was, I was brought up in the Appalachian foothills of Fort Payne, Alabama. And we would go to places where tornadoes had ripped up a barn or, or un, un, unearthed a tree or they'd have these sleet storms, and he would love to go out and see the sleet storms where the power lines have been torn down. He was just tremendously attracted to the to the to the sort of the topsy turvy, the things that looked weird. And I realized that I probably, although I didn't think that I had a lot in common with him, I had that in common with him, and it was all it, it was huge. It was a it was a very deep kind of connection uh, that we had. He would always take me with him. And we had our we had our greatest moments doing that when I was growing up as a little boy. And I, I suddenly realized, that, uh, you know, how much he meant to me because I had not thought of my father, you know, very much other than ordinary ways in a long time. And suddenly, though, at the Al- Alcazar, he really came roaring back into my my heart. No, I loved how you said that visiting places unmoor you, like they disorient you. It sounds almost like it's, they're like physical 
tragedies, right? Like uh, geographic tragedies, like the like the tr- tragic place from ancient Greece where they, they did the same thing. They sort of disoriented you, got you thinking about things. You experienced a catharsis and it helped you think about things that you probably otherwise weren't, wouldn't think about. That's exactly right. It, it, it Because you're not distracted by rides and attractions and all that sort of thing, and your mind is really can become a little bit unfocused even on even on the place that you're at. It allows you just simply to make connections with your own life so that history connects with you and your most intimate aspects of your life. And it's an incredibly powerful experience sometimes. As you said earlier, you know, you visited some of the really big places like Auschwitz and Hiroshima, but some of my favorite sections were like on the places that at first blush didn't, they don't look like dark places. And one of those is a place called Lourdes in France. Tell us about that and why is it a dark place? It, Lourdes is, uh, is in the Pyrenees and it's a very famous place of uh, Catholic pilgrimage. It's based on uh, this young woman, Bernadette, who really didn't even speak French because that part of, at that time, that part of France was really sort of not really France. It was nationally, but the people there really didn't speak French. She saw a vision in the grotto there, a little rock cave. It was a very, very poor area. And over time, this grotto became a very famous place of, of pilgrimage. If you go there now, uh, and I was, I was again there recently, it's very honky-tonk. I mean, the, it's, a, it's a huge tourist attraction. They bring in big buses and all that sort of thing, because it is so famous, Lourdes. And we spent the day there and the night. And it was it was not a it was it was a dark place only because it seemed to me that they had commercialized an element of faith in an extremely garish way. I mean, they have statues of Mary that are really a, a, a water bottle where you you knock off her crown and pour water in it. I mean, it's very, very vulgar, with almost like it was an Elvis Presley shrine. I mean, it's really, it's really awful. And we were about to leave, and then the night's the night procession began. And it was so extraordinarily beautiful that it just simply washed away all of the ill feeling and disappointment that I had at Lourdes and my wife and my daughter as well, because you, you, the procession is of people who are, who are deathly ill and you see wheelchairs and you see people in hospital beds and they're being pushed by family members or sometimes by hospital staff or by nuns. And in many cases, you can tell by the threadbare clothes they wear that this trip to Lourdes is the only trip they've ever, they've ever made. And they've made, they've made it there because they are in desperate straits. And I saw that a dark place can really overcome almost everything that's done to make it less dark. It can overcome even the commercialism around it. And that made, that made uh, Lourdes very powerful and in its darkness, very bright. Uh, another interesting thing that you do throughout the book is you have these little snapshots. They're little vignettes of dark places popping up almost spontaneously during your travels where you least expected it. For example, you you found a dark place unexpectedly while you were in Fiji, which is, you know, that's a prime vacation destination for most Westerners. What was what dark place did you find there and what insight did you get from it? Well, you're right. That was completely unexpected. I mean, uh, Susan and I and, and Justine, we all... We always believed in traveling on public transportation. We could, uh, not in tourist buses. We never went on tours or anything like that. 
And uh, there's a wonderful line from a travel writer that says, life is best seen in a third-class carriage. And I found that that's, that really is true. So we were taking a bus into, a t- I believe the town was called Nadi, a little town in Fiji, because Fiji is basically divided between the way, the way people actually live in the towns and the villages and these huge uh, resorts. And for the tourists, the buses just take you from resort to resort. You don't ever have to really go into the real Fiji. But we were on the bus going in there, and um, this man sat down next to me. Very, very friendly man. He was very, very large. He had lived in England, and he said to me, did you know that Fijians are good bouncers? And I said, no. He said, oh, yes, they employ us a great deal in, in Britain and other places because we're very big but we're very nice. And uh, we had a really nice conversation. He was a very lovely man. And I was thinking of the book at that time. And I said, what do you think's the worst thing that ever, the, the worst thing that ever happened to Fiji? And he said, the British leaving, because they would never have allowed Fiji to become the way it is. And Fiji is in fact a police state. And I thought, how sad to be a person who lives in an island indigenously. This is his island. And to think that it takes foreigners to impose kind of the rule of law upon you. That may or may not be true, but that's how he felt. And I thought that was extremely, extremely sad. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Candid is helping people gain confidence through accessible and affordable orthodontic care. They make the process of straightening your teeth convenient and easy by letting you take the process into your own hands. With Candid, you can get straighter and brighter teeth in an average of six months and at 65% less than the cost of braces. Candid's clear aligners are sent directly to your home and are customized specifically for you to strengthen your teeth, fix things like crooked teeth, crowding, protrusion, and gaps. It starts with their modeling kit, which is sent directly to your home so you can take the impressions of your own teeth. Then Candid's network of highly trained orthodontists reviews your specific case and provides you with a 3D preview of what your treatment will look like. Other companies rely on air quotes dental professionals, but Candid uses only real orthodontists to direct your entire aligner plan. Candid's support team is available over email or phone. They'll even set up a video call to walk you through the modeling process. You're one step away from getting straighter, wider teeth. Take advantage of Candid's risk-free modeling kit guarantee. Plus, when you use my dedicated link, candidco.com manliness, you'll save 25% off your modeling kit. That's candidco.com manliness to get 25% off your modeling kit. One more time, candidco, com slash manliness, com slash manliness to get 25% off the price of your modeling kit. Also by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So right now, my listeners, if you're a small business owner or a hiring manager at a business, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at my exclusive web address. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. That's Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R.com slash manliness. You know how to spell manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. I mean, did you see any hope there with these guys or was it just sort of 
interpret it as, man, this is really sad. And it just kind of speaks to the human condition that sometimes life, you, you just, you're born in the wrong country or you're born in the wrong time, whatever. Well, I, I don't think there's any question, but that people are, you're just simply born in the wrong, in the wrong time and history just rolls over you. There's an incredibly poignant scene that happened at a killing field in, uh, in Poland and it's actually photographed. You can actually see the video. But I was reading about it in Joachim Fest's book, A Biography of Hitler. And they had dug a, a ditch. They had dug a great a big ditch and they were running people naked. They had taken off all their clothes. They were running the people naked into that ditch to be shot. And they would run the one group in and the other group would run over that group. And he talks about a girl who is running nakedly toward that ditch. And as she runs, she points to herself. And she says, 17, 17, meaning that she was going to die at 17. And that was the most poignant thing she could say at that moment. And that, for me, has always been the symbol of history just simply rolling over you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Man, that's haunting. It's really, really haunting. So another place you visited was the World War I place, Verdun in France. Can you describe the darkness that took place there? Verdun is generally regarded as the worst battlefield experience ever, ever experienced by soldiers uh, anywhere. It was called the, the meat grinder. It was designed to be that. In a, in a Christmas memo, a general had said that in order to distract the, the French and bleed them away from the, the Western Front, they would create a kind of Eastern Front and bleed the French army white. That's exactly what was said in that Christmas memo. And so it was always designed to be an absolute killing field. And when you go there, you really see just what a killing field it is. It's one of the places where the landscape has actually taken on what happened there because most of the, most of the wounds that were suffered by soldiers during Verdun, they were concussion wounds. They were not bullet wounds. They were or bayonet wounds. They were concussion wounds by mortars and high explosives. So they were literally blown, blown to bits. So the, the, the mortars would hit and they would blow up the earth and pile the earth up and, uh, and then blow up another one in a pit and, and blow it up. So when you look at the landscape around Verdun, it's very, very jagged because some trees since then have grown up at the bottom of those pits while others have grown up at the top of those pits. And so the whole landscape is sort of jagged. And what you see is a part of the earth that has simply not recovered from, from what happened there. And it, the slaughter was really quite, quite unbelievable. I mean, I, I remember reading that the average lifespan of a first lieutenant there was about six weeks, of another soldier about a month. But the trip to Verdun really also sort of gave me a metaphor for what I was doing because we left Paris heading for Verdun in a, in a rented car. And you go down what the French call the Sacre Voie, which is the, the sacred road, the road down which the flower of French youth went in trains and buses and even taxi cabs to the battle site of Verdun. It's now a highway, and French highways are very, very good. They're very, very clean. They're very well maintained. And you just zip down that, that highway. And all the way, you see these huge posters for Disneyland. Because Disneyland France is the most visited place in France. It is extremely popular. 
And you see all of these people going to Disneyland and you see these children and these teenagers. And I thought, yes, it's, you know, to repeat it. Yes, it's fine to take your kids there. But if you go just a little further down the road after that or next year, you get to Verdun. And you can have a wonderful experience there with your family as well by walking the battlefield, by talking about the war, by seeing the films, by giving them a sense of what other people suffered who didn't have the chance to go to Disneyland and never will. But you also, speaking of young people, you had an insight there while you were in your visit because there was a group of German high schoolers taking a tour with with their school. And they were kind of just joking and jostling around. It's like they didn't recognize the dark place for what it is. Did, did that happen a lot during your travels? Like you'd go someplace where something really terrible happened and people just, they didn't really, didn't really connect with that. Well, in some places, yes. And in some places, no. Some places have taken a step in, in creating a more somber atmosphere than just simply letting people wander about. For example, in the killing fields, there's a sign before you enter in Cambodia There's a sign before you enter the killing fields that tells you that you should not smoke, you should not play radios, you should not listen to your phone. In other words, you should you should take a moment and be be somber because this is a moment of great a place of great tragedy. At Auschwitz, there's a huge sign right before you you know that famous uh, Arbat Makfry that you that you go under. There's a very big sign in in many languages that says that this is a place of great suffering. You should comport yourself in such a way uh, as to respect the suffering that was that was inflicted upon and uh, people here, and that does actually work. And I also noticed that at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, the light is very low. It's not a br- brightly lit museum, and that adds also to a somberness. So when places really do attempt to give you a sense of the somberness of it. It, 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 can, it can really be effective. At Verdun, there's not much of an attempt to do that. And they have a, you know, a little shop where you can buy things and you know, touristy things, bracelets with your name on it and that sort of thing. But Verdun is very large, so people are all, all over. And this group of German kids, they were just jumping around and leaping around. They looked like they were like 14 or 15 years old. And I was beca- I got sort of irritated about it. I, it just it sort of seemed to me they shouldn't be behaving in this way. And there's a very large uh, ossuary there, and this is where they keep the bones of the fallen all there done. And as we were leaving, I could look up at the tower and everything and see those bones. And, I, and, the, and the German bus was pulling away with all the kids in it, and they were frolicking and everything. And I said to my wife, you know, really, this was wasted on them, wasted on them. And she said, well, I think you may be a little bit more intolerant than the people whose bones are in the tower. Because if they could look down and see these kids frolicking and having a good time, they might think, well, I'm glad they can. I'm glad they have their lives. We don't. And she was probably right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, some, I'm sure some of those bones in there were, they were probably 14, 15 years old. Yes. Right. They'd probably, they'd rather be those kids. They'd do the same thing. And speaking of going to that point of of places trying to make it somber and you know let people know this is a place where tragedy occurred, you also talk about how they can go too far and it can actually backfire and like sort of eliminate the the feeling and of I guess reverence is the right word or respect. Mm-hmm. I think there's one example you gave like there's some medieval castle where they you know they depicted you know people getting boiled alive and it sort of 
I don't know, they, they were trying to like really hit home the idea that something bad happened here, but it actually backfired and people kind of thought it was funny. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're, there were there were a few places that, that really, really are bad. They are not they are not good at evoking even remotely what happened there. I think chief among those is is the is the Tower of London, which is a very dark place. You know, people have starved to death there. The executions that were carried out there were awful. And and Thomas Macaulay actually called the Royal Chapel inside the Tower of London, the saddest place on earth. So he certainly must have felt something very, very deep there. But when you go there now, it's, you know, they're selling beef. Everybody's in a beef eater costume. They're selling candy. They're selling tea. They're, they have these big glass booths at extravagant prices. You you go into the Tower of London and they've turned it into a sort of prison Disneyland. Uh, another place where they, they fail is uh, Phokok, which is a prison in an island in the Bay of Thailand, which was a South Vietnamese prison where North Vietnamese uh, soldiers were kept. And they have these sort of paper mache figures that are carrying out torture and everything. And, and they have the lion, the uh, tiger cages and they put paper mache figures in there, life size paper mache figures. And what you see is people putting cigarettes in those people's mouths and in the paper mache figures' mouths, frolicking around, joking. They had a human sized sort of frying pan and they have soldiers putting a, a man in that frying pan. And, you know, some people near me, most of them were uh, Vietnamese. I didn't see any uh, Westerners there. You know, they're going, wow, ow, 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 and just sort of joking around and stuff like that. So places have to be aware of how of, of how they display themselves. And if they are going to evoke sort of frivolity in human beings rather than somberness, then they should they should find another way to display it. It's quite different in Tulsling in Cambodia, which is the torture center there during the Khmer Rouge. And uh, there they've just left it exactly as it is with the torture implements out, with the wire beds out. And you walk from room to room and it's it's very, very somber. And you really get a sense of what people suffered there, which you don't get at Fokak. When you were doing these travels and you know some places you visited people would ask you like why are you here right like i mean did when you told people like what you were doing like what were the responses when you told them well i'm visiting dark places well i mean i i think often what happened which surprised me was that they suddenly told me about a dark place they had gone and i could tell that they were very moved by that place but they were not inclined necessarily to go to to another one and what I was trying to teach is that, you know, you really can go from one to the other, not in sort of some sort of parade through the history of horror, but as a moving experience for your own emotional, uh, emotional life. And I could tell that from time to time, people really did respond to that in, in the very individual ways of the things that, that they had seen and the places they had been. In the course of writing this book, your wife died of cancer. Did that create a, a personal dark place for you, like a location where like, that's now a dark place? Well, I think, yes. Uh, when, you know, I recently went into the room where she died because the apartment was being sold. And, uh, and of course, you, you feel that. But I think her death, she died at, 60, at 62 of uh, metastatic breast cancer. And I guess what that taught me was that sort of the task of life is to, is to outrun regret. 
And it's hard to do, but that is, that is our task. And Susan's great love was travel. And even though at 62 dying, I'm sure she felt like cheated out of a great deal of life. She never got to see her grandchildren, for example, which is, was very, very sad to me. But we had done so much. And since her great love was travel and she had done so much of it, I thought how much more she would have felt cheated if we had waited to when we retired or waited when it would have been easier or waited to when we had more money, how much more cheated she would have felt had we not done so many of the things that we really, really wanted to do. And since then, I, you know, I mean, I'm older now, I'm 71 years old. And so, you know, I've seen people who have waited to retire and then all of a sudden someone has a stroke or or something else happens and they'd never get to do the things that they sort of dream of doing only later. Now I'm certainly aware that, you know, you have to have a little money, uh, you, but it's also how you, how you choose to spend, uh, spend your vacations and everything like that. And she, this was what she wanted. She got a great deal of it before she died. And if there's any, uh, if I feel any sort of recompense with regard to her, it is that, she actually did have great experiences in her life, even though it was taken from her way too soon. And we literally scratched the surface. There's so many places you talk about in the book, and you even give, at the end, an itinerary of dark places that you'd like to visit. But where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, uh, you, the book is, of course, available uh, you know, in bookstores and uh, in, in Amazon, and uh, they can... Uh, they can buy the book. It's also available uh, on Kindle digitally, and and they can buy the book, and they can see if there are any of those places appeal to them. They might want to go, and they can also look at the itinerary of places that if I lived forever, I would I would go, I would visit because I liked. I believe that this has been so infinitely valuable an experience that I would like to continue it as long as I can. And the even greater lesson I think is that. Um, my daughter wants to do this for her children. She considers it an extremely valuable experience that she had as growing up. And she is bent upon with her two children and her husband repeating these voyages with their children because she just considers it an absolutely unforgettable experience that deepened her and made her a citizen of the world rather than just a citizen of one country or one state. Thomas, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Brad. I really appreciate the opportunity. My guest today was Thomas Cook. He's the author of the book, Even Darkness Sings. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash darkness. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find thousands of articles on just about anything, personal finance, physical fitness, relationships. Also, you can check out our podcast archives there as well. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but to put what you've heard into action. Thank you.